Amen. God is good. And all the time. God is so good. Did you guys miss me? In case you didn't know I was away. And uh, so good to serve the Holy One at the Holy In One. Hey. Uh, someone say that once at our conference and I thought, man, this is catchy. This could be our slogan. <laughs> and uh, the men had such a tremendous time yes. yesterday. Man, it felt too good to be true. Um, we caught some fish, or should I say, Rivaldo caught some fish. Yes. And I was just reminded that... Uh, we are fishers of men. Amen. Amen. So I just stood back and I said, man, I'd rather be a, a fisher of, of men for now. <laughs> Would you turn with me to the book of James, please? Will you? I hope you have your Bible. If not, worst case scenario, please turn in your Bible app. The book of James. And I just want to firstly thank the praise and worship team. Can you give them a hand? You guys, every week, remind me of the faithfulness of God uh, through your serving, your sacrifices. And uh, you gave me the freedom and the room to sit out and participate in the worship in preparation for the message. And I love you and appreciate you. And uh, the Lord sees your love and labor. Amen. Are we all at James? Yes. Chapter 1. Amen. And I just want to say this before we get into, <coughs> into our passage. And I kind of heard the Lord really, really minister to this. Uh, uh, ministered this to me this morning and I heard this confirmed in in our prayer session that his word has the power to change you his word has the power to change you in the book of revelations Jesus addresses his church before he judges the world, he judges his church because if judgment must begin, it must begin in the house of God. And so he addresses the seven churches scattered throughout Asia Minor and he speaks to them and he commends them and he corrects them and he gives them counsel. But after each time he speaks to them, he says his words. Seven times he said his words to them. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. And so this morning, I want you to pray that prayer in your heart and say, Lord, give me an ear to hear. I want to hear your word. Because James says in chapter 1 that if we receive the implanted word, it's able to save our souls. So when we hear the word of God, understand that the power of God does not lie in the personality of the preacher it lies in the message of the gospel that if we hear the word if we receive the word meditate on the word practice the word speak the word and, and just constantly think on the word the word will become infused 
into our very being and the word will transform us because the word of God is not given to inform us but to transform us amen and here at rebirth our mission statement one of our mission statement one of our, our pillars in fact is we are a society of brilliance we must be given to the word of god we must be given to the preaching of the word we must be given to the reading of the word to the meditating of the word and the application of the word of god so this is not an ordinary moment this is a special moment where we get to hear and participate in the preaching of the word amen, amen. james chapter 1 and let's read from verse 1 we embark on our three-week series on the book of james and our title this morning is faith under pressure mm. James 1 verse 1 reads as follows. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. This is a figurative reference to the church. If you understand 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes in a similar fashion. He says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. James then goes on to say, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Did you all get that? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then skip with me to verse 12. Verse 12 is a recapitulation or rendering of the passage we just read. He's just restating verse 2 to 4. And James says, Blessed is the man who endures trial, who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Amen. Can we pray? Father, like the song that we sung said earlier, we are not enough unless you come. Will you meet us here again? And Lord, I am not enough, but your word is sufficient. Your word is sufficient. For the word of the Lord is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword divides between joint and marrow flesh and spirit and your word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts and so lord we bless you and we say speak to our hearts and like the word of god appeals to us let us not be hearers of your word only 
but doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And amen. Amen. In the New Testament Greek, the same word that is translated trial or temptation is the word piarmos. That term piarmos is a term that appears in the New Testament and can be translated either way. It can be translated into trial or test, or it can be translated into temptation. What determines the interpretation and meaning of the word is the context in which the word finds itself in. While there are similarities between going through a trial and going through a temptation, there is a difference. There is a difference between undergoing a trial and going through a temptation. Temptation originates from within. Jesus was the only exception. But for all of us and for all humanity, temptation originates from within us. Trial is more rooted and seen from without. Bible tells us in James chapter 1 verse 14 to 15, but each one of you is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin makes passage for death. But trials are often sent and permitted and allowed by God. Yeah. Trials have and bear the finger marks and fingerprints of God. Proverbs 17 verse 3 declares the crucible is for the fire and is for silver. And the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests the heart of men. With this said, it is so important to be able to make a distinction in your life when you are going through a trial yeah. and when you are going through a temptation. Yeah. And you should not confuse the two. Yeah. While there is a distinction between what is a temptation and what is a test from God, it's also important to know that there is a difference between the moments and seasons when God is testing you and when God is disciplining you. Because there's a difference in seasons with when God is disciplining you and chastising you and when he's actually putting you through a test. God chastises us and disciplines us because He loves us. But He often chastises and disciplines us for our disobedience and our stubbornness. And so He chastises us and oftentimes we are going through a season of chastisement from the Lord and we are pointing fingers at the devil. 
And I've said this time and time again, that oftentimes we give the devil too much credit. And we give him credit for what God is doing. It may have been God that shut that door. It may have been God that ended that relationship. And here you are sobbing your snot out, pointing fingers and saying, devil, I rebuke you. And the Lord is saying, no, no, that, that wasn't the devil. Don't give him praise for that. Give me the credit for that. And in his times and seasons where God puts us through the process of testing. And the reason why he does this is to develop patience in us, perseverance in us, and maturity in us. Because God don't want no grown men and women still on the dummy. He wants sheep. You cannot remain a lamb forever. He wants you to mature and embrace the process of spiritual growth. And so he puts you through a test. And it's critical for you to understand the dealings of God in your life. If you understand the dealings of God in your life, you'll understand how to pray. And that's what James says. When we pray, we should ask for wisdom. And with that said, it's also important for us when we approach the Bible and when we approach the scriptures that we pay attention to a few things. That we pay attention to who wrote the Bible, who wrote the letter, why he wrote the letter. What category of genre is applied when the author wrote the letter? What literary styles or devices he uses to communicate his message and to whom he was writing, writing to? One thing we miss when we're interpreting the Bible is that the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written for us. The Bible had an original audience. We are the contemporary audience. And so it's important to understand who is writing the letter. And so we've approached the book of James, the letter of James. It's known and categorized as a general epistle, a letter that was written. And many times, this is my issue and this is my bad habit. When I read an epistle of Paul or, or Peter or, or James, I often skip over the introductions. Yeah. You know, and I get into what I perceive to be the content of the letter. But if you read the scriptures like that, you will make a... a you will make one of the greatest mistakes because you will miss the tone of the letter, the tone that is being set up for the letter. And so from the opening greeting and introduction, we are told that James is the author of this letter. From the beginning, from the get-go, the Bible says, James, a born servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, James is a common name in the New Testament. It's a common title in biblical uh, times. And so we have to try and figure out which James was this. Because 
Matthew chapter 10 verse 2 and Mark chapter 15 verse 40 tells us that there was a James who was the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. They were the sons of Zebedee and Jesus gave them a nickname. You know, Jesus gave, gave nicknames. He called them the sons of thunder. And, and, and there was a James who, who was known by Jesus as the son of thunder, a son of Zebedee who was the brother of John. And this James became the first apostle to be martyred. I think Stephen was the first deacon. James was the first apostle. The next James we have is found in Matthew chapter 10 verse 3. He's known to be James the son of Alphaeus. He was another of the twelve disciples. And in Luke chapter 6 verse 16 tells us that there was another James who was the father of one of the apostles that Jesus had whose name was Judas but not Judas you know that that Iscariot Judas no not not that Judas but another Judas James was his father and so we need to try and figure out which James is greeting us which James is penning these words and according to reliable tradition Church tradition and fathers assigns this letter to none other than James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. He's referenced in Matthew 13 verse 55 to be the brother of Jesus. Jesus also had another brother who was Jude, a half-brother. And James and Jude were blood brothers. Bible also says in Acts chapter 15 and verse 13 that this James who was a half-brother of Jesus also was the lead bishop at the council of Jerusalem. So he led the church in Jerusalem according to Acts 15. And then Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 1 that after his conversion he sought out to seek Peter who was in Jerusalem and he tells us in verse 19 that he saw no one else except James, who was the brother of the Lord. Now perhaps one of the most interesting facts about James that I've come to discover is that James was not a believer in the Lord when Jesus walked the earth and ministered on the earth. He was noted as an unbeliever. In John 7 we have an account where the Bible says, now the Jews, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And Jesus' brothers said to him, depart from here and go into Judea. That your disciples, and, they, and they're saying this cynically. They're not saying this politely. They're saying this out of doubt. And they're antagonizing him. They said, depart from here and go into Jerusalem that your disciples may see your works. That they may see the miracles that you're doing. For no one who does anything, does it in secret unless he seeks to be known openly. In other words, don't do your things yet. Go do it openly and let's see if they believe you. And then Jesus replies to them. Or James 7 says before his reply, for even his brothers did not believe in him. And Jesus turns to his brothers and says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always. And it's not strange that even your closest family will doubt you. Yeah. 
Even the people closest to you will be the most unsupportive. But we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that when Jesus had died and was buried and when he rose again, he was seen by Cephas, another name for Peter. And he was seen by the twelve disciples. And after he was after that he was seen by another 500 brethren at one time and then he appeared to his brother James and when he had appeared to his brother James after having been crucified buried and risen from the dead this marked the time when James would have a change of heart. This would make, mark the time when James would become a believer in Jesus Christ. This marked the time that Jesus had spoken of and said, my time has not yet come, but your time is always. And this was James' time. James seized the moment. And he moved from being an unbeliever to a believer and the rest is history James goes on to climb the spiritual ranks of authority in the church and he became the lead overseer at the council of, of Jerusalem where even Peter and the apostles reported to him now knowing that James <coughs> was the brother of Jesus that's greeting us that throws a different light on his opening statement because he writes his letter and says this is James a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ he could have introduced himself as James the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ he could have introduced himself using his credentials and said this is the bishop of the Lord's church but no he doesn't seek to make himself out to be someone of significance he doesn't use his apostolic credentials to gain him leverage he dumbs down the aura of his authority and Pushing aside the fact that everybody knew he was the brother of Jesus Christ, he introduces himself instead as a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a power-hungry age that's filled with many preachers and charlatans that are grasping after the ranks and titles in the church, is there anybody out there that is posturing themselves as a bond servant? We have so many unbiblical designations, chief apostles, major one, prophetic seer, and few have assumed the posture of a bond servant.
We've lost what it means to be a servant in the kingdom of God. Because everyone is striving for recognition and popularity and fame. But all I want to hear one day when I see him face to face. He's well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little rebirth. I will make you ruler over much. Enter ye into the joy of the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and ask them, are you a servant? The Greek term used for bond servant is the term doulos. In New Testament times, slavery. Slavery was the institution whereby a person holds ownership rights over another person. In other words, if you were a slave, you belong to your master. The term doulos also carries the idea of a slave who is seeking out how he can practically live out his master's will. And of late, in the local church, I said this to the team, I'm having my reservations about the t-shirts we wear. And have them printed at the back, volunteer. Because friends, I'm not a volunteer. Come on. I'm a bond servant. Come on. I am bound by duty. Come on. I'm bound by duty. Even if I'm the last one to leave, in God's kingdom, I am not a volunteer. I am a bond servant. That's why Paul said, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe, cursed am I. I'm a bond servant. I love to please my master. And before we get into James' opening remarks, it's important to pay attention to the style in which he writes. If you ignore the literary style of scripture, it's easy to misinterpret scripture. And so James, the book of James, is referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Because James writes in a very practical way. He's his writing is filled with clear and direct commands. It resembles the pattern of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. He doesn't go to, to lens to develop long thoughts and concepts and to unravel them like the Apostle Paul would know. But what James does is he makes a point and he moves on quickly to the next point. And so he gives us these blocks of, of topics and so it's been difficult for scholars to figure out the structure in which James writes because he, he seems to be all over the place. And he writes in this manner because his purpose is not just to inform you. His purpose is to exhort, his purpose is to scold, and his purpose is to encourage. He is the practical pastor. He's not necessarily the theologian. And so he makes use of elaborate, lavish metaphors and illustrations. In chapter 1, he tells us that one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's driven 
to and fro by the wind. In chapter 1 verse 23, he tells us, If anyone hears the word and is not a doer, he's like the man observing his natural face in the mirror. And, and after observing his face, he goes away and he forgets what he looks like. And in chapter 3, he tells us, Look at the ships. They are so large and driven by fierce winds. They are turned yet by the small rudder. Wherever the pilot desires, he gives us the picture of fierce winds and a rudder on a ship. And then he goes on to say, look at that little member, the tongue. A little fire. See how a little fire kindles so great a world of iniquity and then in chapter 4 he goes on to tell us about don't care about today and tomorrow you know don't, don't boast about today and tomorrow whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life it is like the vapor that appears the morning fog that appears and then disappears and vanishes that's how brief your life is in the span of time he loves you know when you read the book of James James letter is breathing with the love of nature he speaks to us of a billowing seas, forest fires, bits in horses' mouths, uh, mouths, fig trees, pure springs, morning vapors. He uses a world of nature in the similar sense that Proverbs does in order to convey spiritual principles and truth. Yes. And so his opening remark sets the tone for everything that he's about to say. The, his big ideas contained in his opening thoughts. And he lets his original audience know from the get-go the tone and manner in which he's writing in and the purpose for why he's writing because he tells him from the word go my brethren count it all joy when you fall into various trials the very first truth he wants them to meet knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, the Greek word used is teleos, which means that you may be mature, yes. spiritually mature. Now the English, a New English Bible paraphrase puts it this way, when all kinds of trials crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders but welcome them as friends. Count yourselves extremely and supremely blessed. Now the most difficult of all commands in the scriptures for me is this command. Count it all joy when you go through all kinds of trials. This is a paradox. This is, would God or something impossible of you to frustrate you it ranks up to another command that I find difficult to obey which is 1st Thessalonians 5 verse 16 in everything give thanks imagine being at the hospital on your sick bed imagine just getting the report you've, we're retrenching in everything give thanks imagine she walks out of your life she was the love of your life. And the Bible says, in everything, give thanks. <laughs> God is not trying to frustrate us or overthrow us when he gives us these difficult commands. 
He will never give us a command to obey without the grace to fulfill it. And so James is not stating that trials in themselves are joyful. No. But what he is actually saying is that they are a means to an end that is joyful. In other words, joy in trial comes from knowing that the outcome will be good. For I know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called by his name. It's working together. And so let's break down this passage. Firstly, he says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. The Greek word is hegomai, which is a mathematical term, which means think about it and come to a conclusion. Make your evaluations. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He says, count it all joy when, when you fall into various trials. Not if, because it's not a matter of if you fall into trials. It's just a matter of when. Because nobody sitting here is exempt from problems. You can be Bill Gates. You can be Cristiano Ronaldo, you can be the pastor, the deacon, you can be the chief apostle. No one is exempt from trials. God never promised you, sir, a life without challenges and difficulties. No one is exempt from the bad times. And somehow we've developed a theology in the church that has not prepared us for difficulties. Because we want to be wealthy and healthy and blessed. We want to profess and confess name and claim. And when troubles meet us at our door, we we, we fall apart. Life was not designed to be easy. Life can be tough. Doors can close. Hearts can break. People can grieve. It's not always rosy and sunny. Adulting is tough. The interest rates go up. The stage of load shedding just keeps on going up. The Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into these various trials. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials because a fall is unplanned a fall is unanticipated now i must make this distinction is that some of us don't fall into trials some of us go looking for the trouble and so this is not the kind of trouble that james is speaking about in this statement of truth the word of god is telling us in this idea of falling there's no room of seeking out trials this is not the trouble you go looking for so if you go looking for the wrong man the wrong woman and she's giving you grief and she is you know she's just using you as a pen tin or sugar daddy don't say the Lord is testing you If you go there to Silver Star and look at those 
slot machines and burn out all your cash and you get home and you say babe I've lost it all don't you dare blame it on God don't you dare say the Lord is testing me <laughs> and I'm just going through the season the Lord is taking me no Come on. and if you put yourself in that kind of trouble don't don't even assume he's obligated to help you <laughs> some of us go to you know these parties and get up to all kinds of tricks and get into all kinds of messes and then then we say Lord come through fast am I making sense here family am I, am I preaching here this morning so the Bible says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. God allows and sends trouble. Is it okay to say that God sends trouble? Is that the pattern of the Old Testament? Is that the pattern of, of scripture? Yeah. When he tells Abraham, take your only son, the son I promised you, the son you supernaturally conceived, and put him on the, on, on the altar there on Mount Moriah, and slay him. Yeah. Does God still do that kind of stuff? Yeah. Where he sends his only begotten son into the world, and the Bible says it pleased him that he was bruised for iniquities. Mm. And so when when God sends us trouble, He sends trouble with the intention of testing your faith. <laughs> because everything and anything valuable must undergo a test. Because if it's not tested, it cannot be trusted. Come on. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, Your faith is precious to God. These trials will show that your faith is genuine and legitimate. It is being tested as fire tests, as gold is purified, that your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. There's nothing more precious to God than your faith. Come on. And so we'll test it. Trials are God's blessings in disguise. We learn to trust Him through trials. Edwin Luther said, God often puts us in situations that are too much for us so that we will learn that no situation is too much for Him. He purifies us through trials. William Secker said, By trials and trouble, the Lord removes sin He hates from the soul He loves. Trials and trouble are sent by God also to introduce you to yourself. We will never learn more about ourselves in moments of adversities and trials. 
We learn our strengths. We learn our proclivities. We learn our weaknesses. And God sends all these trials and troubles our way with the intention of testing our faith. Why? So that it would produce patience. Now this is the problem with being a contemporary audience is that when we hear the word patience, we think of standing in a home affairs queue <laughs> and passively waiting to get to the front of the queue. Or me sitting in the mall while away, scattering everywhere. No! The term patience in the Greek, I think the English term used just doesn't do it justice. It means perseverance. It means to be able to remain under pressure. And so when God tests our faith, He wants to produce a staying power, a perseverance inside of our spirits. Trouble and trials don't produce faith. Just because you're going through something and you survive doesn't mean you had the faith. That's not the purpose of trials. It's not the purpose to produce faith. No. The purpose of trials is to test your faith. Faith doesn't come by trials. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Romans 10. Patience comes by the testing of your faith. Why is perseverance and patience so important to God? Why would he send troubles your way, sir? To answer this question, we must look at the term and definition of what patience is. The ancient Greek word is hupomeno. Hupomeno. The word hupo means to be placed under. The term meno means to stay and abide and remain. At its root, the term patience means to remain under. It has the picture of someone under a heavy load. But someone who's choosing to stay under that load instead of escaping that load. The term patience in the Greek also carries the idea of enduring trials, persevering towards a goal, and expectantly waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. That's why Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight of sin that so easily besets us, and let us run with patience. The race yet before us. Does one run a race passively? No. You run the race with endurance, with the end in mind. So James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience allow patience to have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing why does God God bother to send us all his trials and trouble simple to bring us to spiritual maturity spiritual maturity is not reached by the passing of years 
Not because you've been a Christian for 30, 40 years and your grandmama was a Christian and my mommy was a Christian. No. You are spiritually mature the moment you start having a heart to obey the will of God. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Obedience can be learned through trials and suffering. Growing into spiritual maturity is becoming less conscious of yourself and becoming more conscious of God. He must increase and I must decrease. That's what Jesus said. If you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Put your own opinions to the side. This generation places too much value on their opinions. And how I feel and my truth. What is his truth? Spiritual maturity is the capacity to endure uncertainty. Even if he doesn't make a way. Even if he makes a way or he doesn't make a way. Life is hard but God is good. He doesn't change. The times and seasons will. I may fluctuate in my faith, but he remains faithful even to a thousand generations. Being a mature Christian means that I don't neglect my prayer time, that I don't neglect my Bible, that I don't neglect church, that I don't neglect the prayer meeting, that I'm eager to serve him, putting aside my, 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 my sense and need for comfort and convenience. He sends trials and troubles to bring us to maturity and to develop our character because God is more concerned about your character than your convenience. He's more concerned about your character than your comfort. He's more concerned in the production of character than the provision of comfort. The ABC of spiritual growth is adversity builds character. Character is both revealed and developed by problems and trials. Character is not about you doing good. It's about you becoming like God. Romans 5 says, Not only so, brethren, but we glory in sufferings. Because we know that sufferings produce perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So next time you go through a trial, or you go through a season, ask yourself, am I being chastised? For my disobedience. Is God disciplining me for my disobedience? Am I being tempted by my own desires? Or is the Lord putting me through a test? Can we stand? Can your faith endure the pressure? 
Can your faith remain under a heavy load? Yes. The Bible says, if you, if you fail in the midst of adversity, then your faith is weak. Yes. Your faith is weak if you cannot stand the test of, of, of time. Are you prepared to meet trials? Are you prepared to face your challenges? And next time when you do, do the evaluations and meet it with joy. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Father, I thank you, Lord, that your presence.